The word gospel means good news. Uh, And Christianity, um, believe it or not, is meant to be good news. It's not meant to be okay news or kind of, you know, until I get a better offer news. It's not meant to be take it or leave it news or or kind of like all right-ish news. It is meant to be good news. In fact, I, I would suggest that if someone, if you, perhaps, if you don't want the Bible to be true, it's probably because you don't really know what the Bible says. Now, as Christmas looms upon us, we are remembering histories that are retold. We're remembering um, how that mighty warrior came from heaven and shone his light upon the terrified shepherds. And he said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Those shepherds who heard that angel speak, they were unremarkably ordinary. Quite like us, probably. Um, But smashing into their ordinary lives came this announcement that there is good news. And that message has not changed. It's not been dented by the years that separate us from those shepherds. The same news, the good news, comes to us today. And it's the reason why we don't need to be afraid. And and it's it's a cause, it can be a cause of such great joy that the Messiah has been born. Good news, blisteringly brilliant good news. Uh, But why is that? Why does this lowly birth uh, mean so much for so many? Well, I think Isaiah 11 might be able to help us a little with that this morning as we come again, as we continue our series working through the book of Isaiah. Uh, these messages compiled by this man who lived uh, in the 8th century BC. Uh, he lived a long time before the, the angel and those shepherds announced the good news. Uh, but it's Isaiah's message that helps to show something of the goodness of this news. Uh, we've, we've said this a number of times, but I'll, I'll say it again. We're, we're coming to the end of a little section in Isaiah, um, a section that began in chapter 9 with the announcement of a king, a righteous king who is going to come. That's been followed by two messages of judgment on pride, first the pride of Israel and the pride of Assyria. But then it's wrapped up again in our passage this morning, again with the announcement of a righteous king. Good news that the king is coming. And none of our chapter uses the words good news. I'm telling you it's good news. And I'm telling you it's good news because the angel said that when Isaiah 11 is fulfilled, when, when these things written so long ago actually happened, the angel said it is good news and it's good news for everybody. Good news. Good news that the king is coming. That, that's what our passage is saying, saying the king is coming. Uh, look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his root, a branch will bear fruit. Who is this Jesse? Jesse's a a farmer who lived in Bethlehem a long time before these things. Uh, And One day, the prophet Samuel visited Bethlehem and he visited Jesse. And he said to Jesse, I want to see your sons. Because the Lord had told Samuel that one of Jesse's sons was going to be the king. Jesse's youngest son. Uh, was on the fields of Bethlehem, on the hills outside Bethlehem, looking after the sheep. His name was David, and uh, David was a man after God's own heart. Very flawed, but faithful. 
and, and David did become king and God made some great promises to David as king. The promise to David was that in David's line, through David's descendants, would come a king who would be the king forever. The kings in David's line didn't do very well, though. They were really disappointment after disappointment. And since David's time, the nation has just been spiraling, spiraling down into sin and then more sin and drifting further and further away from God. And when God appeared to Isaiah, we read it in chapter 6, he commissioned Isaiah to be a prophet. And the message that God gave to Isaiah was a bleak message. God said to Isaiah, the people who you speak to, they're going to be so clogged up with themselves, so stuck in their sin, they will not listen. And Isaiah said, that's terrible. That's awful. Lord, how long will that be for? And God said to Isaiah, it will go from bad and then to worse. And then the land will be emptied. It will be like a, a great tree that has been chopped down, leaving just a stump behind. And maybe you remember back in September this year, um, the, the news, some say tragic news, that the Sycamore Gap tree, um, most famous, of course, for its featuring in the best film ever made, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, um, the Sycamore Gap tree on Hadrian's Wall had been vandalized overnight, a chopped down, mysteriously chopped down, destroyed, leaving just a stump, just a stump as a monument uh, to what had been, to the greatness of what had been. This is what will happen, said God, uh, to the nation of Judah. This is what would happen to the hope of David. Uh, in Isaiah's time, the king was called Ahaz. Uh, he, he didn't trust the Lord. He was a bad man. Um, and in chapter 7, we met Ahaz, and the Lord came to Ahaz to appeal to Ahaz in grace, as we saw. But Ahaz refused the Lord again and again. And so the message to Ahaz is that the monarchy would end. The monarchy isn't going to survive. You've rebelled too much. And those great ancient promises in this time, even ancient in this time, promises to David that they're melting like ice in the midday sun. And the hope that was given to David wasn't just a hope for this little nation. It was a hope for all the nations. But it is fading so fast in these days. The tree has been felled. Just a stump remains. So we come to Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. And we find that that stump is not totally dead. Hope is not completely lost. This stump will produce a shoot. It'll just be a little twig to start with. But it'll grow. It'll grow, become a branch, and a branch that will bear fruit. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, that Bethlehem farmer, a man of no real significance, living in Bethlehem, which was always a kind of out-of-the-way sort of place. But from those humble origins, from the least of places, would come life. Shoots would come up. A shoot would rise up from the stump of Jesse. I think telling us from the stump of Jesse, not because it will just be another king in David's line. Now, those kings had proved over and over again that they weren't able to carry the weight of the promise. But, if it, but this time, this, this shoot will be another from Jesse, another David. Verse 10. If you glance down to verse 10, we find that this shoot from Jesse is now called the root of Jesse. Now this new king, from those humble origins, is also somehow going to be himself the origin of the messianic hope. 
The one who comes from Jesse's line is also the one who produced Jesse in the first place. He is both shoot and root. This second David, the new king, both lowly and mysteriously mighty. The king is coming. That's the message. But what's so good about this king coming? Why, why is the birth of this king in any way any good? Well, I'm going to draw our attention to three reasons in Isaiah 11 why it is good. First, good because of who he is, good because of what he has done, and good because he is for all peoples. Uh, good news because of who he is. Uh, if you happen, as I did this week, um, search on the internet for unrealistic job descriptions, um, you find a lot of examples. In fact, most of the examples are to do with jobs which require a certain number of experience, uh, years' experience in a certain computer program, where the number of years' experience exceeds the time that that computer program has been around. Um, lots of examples of that. People enjoy those. But my, my, my favourite one was in an advert. They, they put up a picture of this advert. Um, for serving drinks in a donut shop. Uh, and on the list of qualifications, it said qualifications required a doctorate is preferred for that. Uh, you need skill, I guess, to serve coffee, maybe. I don't know whether that's appropriate. But, but different jobs do need different skill levels, don't they? Now, if you, if you want to be a doctor, it matters that you pass your doctor exams, doesn't it? No, if, if your doctor is going to treat you, you are really, really bothered if that doctor has not properly got a qualification. You don't want that doctor to treat you, do you? Qualifications matter. So what is the job of the king? Well, Isaiah 9 already spoke of this king. Isaiah 9 said, He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That's his job. His job is to be, as we said, the forever king over a kingdom that is perfectly just at every level. What kind of qualifications do you need to do that? If you were to write a job advert for the forever king who's going to bring eternal peace to all the world, what do you put on the job description? What are the necessary qualifications? Well, verse 2 tells us how this king will be qualified for the job. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. This king will have what the current line of kings lacks. He will have the spirit of the Lord resting on him. That's what makes him the Messiah. That's what it means to be the Messiah, anointed by the spirit. That, that is, he will be equipped for the job of being king with the power of the Lord working in him by the spirit of the Lord. And just in case we're not clear on what that means, verse 2 goes on. It's the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. The spirit is going to bring to him everything that is needed for being a king. Now, what does a king need if he's going to govern in peace? Well, he needs a load of wisdom and understanding, doesn't he? See what's going on to be able to see the best way to, to move forward. And he's going to need loads of counsel and might to de decide between different options, to, to, to lead and to govern, to have the strength of character, to, to, to lead a people in the right ways. This king will be thoroughly equipped for the work. There is no qualification that he will lack. His, his skill set is in infinite supply. 
everything he needs to be the perfect king, and above it all, he will have the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In fact, it says he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This king will be so closely related to the Lord that his happiness, his, his deep happiness will be found when he honours and serves God. That's the king's supreme concern, to be pleasing God. And, and in the fullness of time, we learn that this is his concern because God is his own father. That, that when this king comes, he comes to do his father's will because he loves his father. In the fullness of time, the baby of Bethlehem grew to be a man and he went to be baptised by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist freaked out at the idea of baptising Jesus, but Jesus insisted. And when Jesus came up out of the water, the Spirit descended on him like a dove and the Father in heaven said, This is my Son and I love him and he makes me really happy. It's at the baptism of Jesus we see this fulfilled, the Spirit of the Lord resting on him. The King thoroughly equipped for his work. And that is good news. That is such good news for so many reasons. But let me tell you one reason. He is thoroughly equipped, so it doesn't matter that we are not. It doesn't matter that we are not. Uh, in Greek mythology, um, Zeus punishes Atlas by giving him the job of carrying the weight of the heavens on his shoulders. It's a punishment. It's a, to give the idea of perpetual suffering. And we use the phrase today, don't we, when, when somebody is, is kind of burdened, we say they seem to be carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. They seem to be acting as if it's their responsibility to stop everything falling down. We feel that, don't we? And we feel that ourselves. We, the world aches and we long to see change and we, we're so helpless. We can't fix anything. It's true, isn't it? We can't fix anything and we are helpless. It doesn't mean there's not help, though. It was never our job to carry the world. Now, this king, though, and it's not a punishment for him, it's his privilege and his joy for him to please Father God by coming into the world, by being born into our humanity, by being filled with the Spirit of God, so that as the second David, and the name David means the loved one, as the loved one, as the beloved Son of Heaven, born Son of Man, so that he might be the king thoroughly equipped to fix the world. So it doesn't matter that we're not equipped to carry the weight of everything. We're not meant to. That's not our job. That's his job. And that's why it's such good news that he has come. Good news because of who he is. But next, it's good news because of what he will do. <clears throat> uh, we've already touched on this a little, but I think Isaiah 11 um, leads us into it in, in some quite stunning ways. Um, I, I spoke to a psychologist this week whose job it is to provide therapy for people who, who've lived in some of the darkest places of the world. And she'd just come off a, a therapy session and she was telling me about um, the man she'd been speaking to who comes from Gaza. Um, she, she shared with me some of the details of his own story and a, a, a word like tragic just doesn't really seem to do any justice to what she described in this man's life, to what he's experienced. Now, the world in which we live contains things which are unspeakably awful. Maybe you've, you, you've read or heard the account of the things that happened on October the 7th. 
Uh, when, when you look on the BBC report, there's a big disclaimer at the front because the things described are so horrific. Now, that conflict in the Middle East, there's no real happy ending to what's going on there, is there? And m maybe we try to shut these things out. We, we can't really cope if we linger too much upon them. And, and, and then the other danger is that our hearts just get hard. Uh, we stop aching as we hear of another child killed or another woman wrecked or another town demolished. And we, we, the harder we get, the less human we become. But, but what else can we do? It's not just the world far away that's messed up, is it? No, our own worlds, our own lives. There are things for us that may be so personal to us, but in their own ways, they're so awful. Now, I know that for many of us here, there are deep sorrows. And then they sit in our hearts and they stubbornly refuse to budge. No, it can be that there's some sorrows, they're so deep, we're not quite sure who we would be without them. And because that's what the world is like, can we ever dare to imagine another world? Uh, Isaiah chapter 11 was first spoken to a people who knew darkness very well. Uh, but this chapter takes them, and, and I suggest it takes us too. It takes us by the hand, and it shows us what this king will do. This is what he will do. The first thing that he will do is that he will bring perfect justice. See verse 3? He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Now, this coming kingdom will be established with justice and righteousness. So when this king comes, he's not going to be swayed. The decisions he makes will not be based on hearsay, but based on perfect knowledge. And that means that the troubles and the concerns of the very weakest, that's what it's speaking about here, those trodden down, those who are needy, that their concerns are safe in the hands of this king. He will do for them what is right. He's not going to crush, he's not going to trample. He's not, he's not like so many of the rulers we know in our own world who are, who are so weak that they need to dominate. This king will be so strong that he can be committed to the welfare of the last and the least and the lost. Perhaps that doesn't sound like good news when your own world has been ruined beyond all hope of restoration. But, but, but listen to what he says. Listen to what it says. It says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. This king will ensure that any harm that has been done, that he will ensure that there is no harm that will not have to answer to his perfect justice, a justice that understands completely. Now, earthly justice, good as it is, can only ever go so far. It will always be somehow incomplete and insufficient. But this king will hold to account every tyrant, every abuser, every oppressor, every vandalizer of humanity. There's nothing that will escape his gaze. There is no cry of pain that he will miss, no tear that will fall without him knowing it. The cause of the needy and the afflicted will become his own cause. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it makes clear that this rod from his mouth, this breath from his lips, 
will bring a punishment that is just, it's entirely proportionate, and it is awfully eternal. You see, this king, verse 5 says, this king, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness to sash round his waist. Like the, the uniform of a police officer tells you their job. Here, this king puts on his uniform, and his uniform is righteousness and faithfulness. That's what he's about. He must bring this justice because it's who he is. This must happen. This king must come and sort out the injustice in the world and clear away all the wickedness. But that's not where it ends. The, the job of this king is not just a clean-up job. His job is much more. He will bring perfect justice, but he will bring perfect justice in order that he can bring perfect peace. You look with me at verses 6 to 9. There's, there's a lot of debate about these verses, about how to interpret these, this description of these animals, these prey and predator all kind of coming together. Um, I'm going to tell you what I think, um, which is what you'd expect. Um, but let's not allow any questions that we have about this. Um, robbers of the, the wonder of this bizarre scene that is put before us. It's just, let's think about it for a little bit. The first thing it says is that the wolf will, lie, will live with the lamb. And live with, the, the, the idea of that is that the, the lamb will welcome the wolf into its home. Imagine with me the three little pigs. The big bad wolf comes and he says, little pig, little pig, let me come in. And the little pig says, of course, welcome, come on into my home. It's so lovely to have you here. That's what's going on here. Or, or imagine the leopard, it speaks of a leopard here, rippling with its muscles, with its sharp, long teeth. And it prowls up to a little goat, and the little goat just bleats with delight and nozzles up to the leopard as it yawns and then stretches out next to him. Or the lion. I really love lions. They're my favorite animals. Fearsome, aren't they? Majestic. Uh, but here we have a lion cuddling up with a calf. And, and over all of it, there's a little child. It says, a little child who calls to them. And, and like an obedient puppy, all these animals just... Follow the little child along, happy, willing to follow. Verse 7 says, the cow will feed with the bear. And then it says, their young will lie down together. So, so I think we've been told, this is a mother bear with her cubs. The most dangerous animal on the planet. I don't know if that's true, but you don't want to get between a mother bear and her cubs. I've seen the revenant, but it's terrible. Um, but this is another world being described here, isn't it? This world works differently. The cow doesn't feed the bear, it feeds with the bear. The lion eats straw. And then, and then it tells about a baby playing near the cobra's den. Now imagine if you actually saw that happening. A, a little baby playing near the nest of a poisonous snake. You, your stomach would churn in panic, wouldn't it? Every instinct in you would be to rush in and snatch that child away from certain danger and probably death. But in this other world, the child puts its hand into the nest and the snake coils around it and the child just giggles. The snake opens its mouth and its tongue flicking in and out and maybe the toddler copies it and they, they, they play together. This other world, this is a world where fear is, is, just, is ancient, it's lost in the past. This world doesn't have a need for fear. 
This world is a world where death doesn't have hold. Now, where is the sting in the viper's bite? It is gone. Where is death's sting? It is gone in this world. And go back to Genesis 3 and that ancient war between the woman, the seed of the woman, the child, the child of the woman and the serpent. That ancient war and the fear and the hatred and the death that, that was all wrapped up in that. Now it belongs to a different story, a different world. Verse 9 says, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. In the Messiah's reign. The terrors of insecurity and danger and evil. They'll be vanished as if they had never been. That's the message. That's the message here of what this king will do. This king will bring peace of that kind of nature. But, but I think we can maybe press into it a bit more. The, the same ideas we find here in chapter 11 will come again when we get to chapter 65 in about 300 years' time. Um, in chapter 65, these ideas are introduced in a passage that begins with the Lord saying, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. You know, Isaiah 11 is giving us that new creation picture. And someone said that new creation, that new world is an intensification, an escalation, and an amplification of the old. God's great plans for the world is not to wind us back to the beginning. His great plans for the world is to do something new. Now, one commentator on these verses says, this, these animals acting like this, this has to be picture language. And maybe it is. And the, the, the argument goes like this, that if a lion were to lose its appetite for meat, if a lion were to be content with eating straw, it would mean losing its lion nature. That's what the commentator said. It would lose its lion nature. That's the question. How can a lion be a lion if it's not a predator? This is how C.S. Lewis put it. We need our obligatory C.S. Lewis quote. He said, If the earthly lion could read the prophecy of that day, when he shall eat hay like an ox, he would regard it as a description not of heaven, but of hell. How can a lion be a lion if it's like this? And yet I wonder whether that is not the power of the promise. I wonder if, if what we have described here is not goats and lions being unlike goats and lions, but these animals being so transformed, so rewired, that they have become kind of more goatish, more lion-like than they have ever been in the age of this world. Now, now might it not be that the lionness of the lion is not that it's a carnivore, that that's somehow a kind of accident of its being an additional part, but not integral? Now, might it be that this lion in Isaiah 11 is more lion and not less? Now, this lion still has the potential to kill the calf next to it. The viper still has poison that could kill the child in minutes. But in this new world, the glory of those beasts is not in using their strength for those purposes. The glory in these beasts is for something else. I guess it raises interesting questions for wildlife or life, I guess we have to call it, in the new world. Um, but I think the matter is more pressing, not so much for lions, but for us. You see, if we can ask that question, how can a lion be a lion if it's no longer a predator? What about us? What about we who have never known a moment without sin in our lives? 
We, were, we have an earthly nature which cannot know what it is not to sin. Our sin feels so integral, doesn't it? Now, don't we want to ask the question, how can I be me if I do not sin? I've never met that version of me. Would I even recognize him? So might it be that this description of animals in harmony with the prey and the predator, but no harm, with no appetite to hurt, might it just help us to imagine a future world? And again, I think this is C.S. Lewis, who, uh, who says that as a future world where we will be more human than we ever succeeded to be in this. A future world where our, our vices and our twisted desires and our impure thoughts is all gone. A world where we are so fundamentally rewired, where we are so transformed that while still being us, in that place we will not be able to sin. We will have no appetite for it. And do you see that there is something like that that must happen if the king is to bring an eternal reign of peace? For, for a new world to be created where no harm can be done, where no destructive word can be said, where no hurtful thought can be thought, where no action will diminish the other person. If a world is going to be like that, the inhabitants of it must be remade, must be transformed. So we've already seen a bit already in Isaiah. But back in chapter 2, it spoke about swords being beaten into plowshares. A world where, where weapons are not needed because people won't hate each other. Again, we saw it in Isaiah 9 when it speak, spoke of the tools of war being burned in a fire. The tools of war no longer needed because the king comes to bring peace. But there won't be the possibility of war. Because in that world, the hearts of the people will be wired only to love. Verse 9 of our passage explains the cause. Why? Why it will be that in this new world there will not be any harm, any appetite for harm. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the first part of that verse, God speaks of my holy mountain. It's a way of saying the place where God sets up his home and now we see it becomes the whole earth. The whole earth saturated with knowledge of God. That's how waters cover the sea, isn't it? You can't have sea where there is no water. It's a complete covering. And the reason for the transformation described is that everyone everywhere will know the Lord. And this knowledge of the Lord is not just knowing about him. It's knowing him. It's being in a relationship with him and knowing a relationship which is, it's like being plugged into the power supply. When you have that kind of connection, it's the power that flows in to bring the change. And maybe later you might want to look up Jeremiah 31, which again speaks of the newness that will come. It calls it a new covenant reality. It says in that reality, um, everyone will know the Lord. And, and there it describes knowing him as belonging to him. Belonging to him with sins both forgiven and forgotten. In Isaiah 11, knowing the Lord comes through the king upon whom is the spirit of knowing. Through whom that knowing, that transformational knowing comes to the people. The king is coming, that's the message. The king is coming and he has a job to do. 
His job is to bring perfect justice. His job is to do that to enable a world of perfect peace. That's good news. Isn't that the world that we want, all of us? Deep down, isn't it, that we want a world where no harm can be done? A world where there is no fear, where there, where there are no tears, where a world where sorrow is just not needed. Uh, C.S. Lewis wonders if this is not what we are always craving. We're always craving a world like this. So often we settle for less. But deep within, it's what we're made for. Uh, we're always going to be restless until we rest in a place like that. We're always going to be disappointed and dissatisfied until we rest in a place like that. As the writer to Ecclesiastes says, of Ecclesiastes says, meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And what it means is that it's like grasping for bubbles. Nothing really lasts. Nothing has substance. It just pops and it's gone. And we journey in emptiness through life, probably because we weren't meant to find life here. The king is coming. The king is coming so that we might dare to imagine another world. And when the king comes, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Believe in me, he says, trust me, because I'm going to make everything new. Trust me to make a way. And he did. He did all of that. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He came to lay down his life and to answer for perfect justice. So that people whose nature it is to sin, all people, so we can know God as our friend and our father. And then he rose again. He rose into a new life, a new mode of life, resurrection life. Taking on himself that responsibility to be new creation. And promising that all who trust him will be changed as he was changed. The perishable clothed with the imperishable. The mortal with immortality and the sting of death gone forever because sin is gone forever. And then he says he's going to come again. And when he comes again, he says, I am making everything new. We don't see that yet. We don't see the world put right. We don't see the end of sin in our own lives. But we do see Jesus. We see the king, the king who has come to do all that he said he would. That's why it is such good news that he has come. Good news because of who he is. Good news because of what he will do. And then thirdly, good news because he is for all people. From verse 10, the, the good news of this coming king, that imagining this world to come, it, it now lands back in reality with a bit of a bump. We turn from imagined other worlds into this world and we wonder how will the king do all of this? Verse 10 and 11 both begin with the words, in that day. Reminding us that God has a plan for history. It's going to be worked out on these lines. That in Isaiah's time there would come this time when the promises would begin to be put into action. Now, the first thing we're told about that day is that this king, the shoot and the root of Jesse, will stand as a banner, raised up like a flag. And verse 12, again, calls him a banner. He will raise a banner. You see, this king will come. And when this king comes into the world, he will be lifted up as a great emblem, a rallying point, 
a rallying point, as verse 10 says, to draw people to himself, drawing the nations to himself. Because this king will come to be a king for all people, from all places, from all the corners of the world. And his resting place will be glorious. That is his home. His resting place is his home, will be glory. When he draws people to himself, that's where they come to. He's inviting all the inhabitants of the world to come to his home and see his glory. This is good news. Good news because these promises and expectations have become history. The angels announced the good news that the Savior has been born. And he was. And Jesus said in John 3, I must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life. He was speaking of his death. He said it again in John 12. He said, when I'm lifted up as a banner, I will draw all the people to myself. And he said in John 14, Jesus said, I am going away to make a home for all who trust me. And I will come and I will get them so that they may be with me where I am in my home. And he said in John 17, he said, I want everyone who trusts me to be with me and see my glory. I want them to come home and see my glory. And so he was lifted up as a banner on the cross. Lifted up as a banner at the resurrection. And then from that point, the news of what he has done has spread and spread to all the world, calling people from every nation to trust Jesus. And he will bring all who trust him into his heavenly home to see his glory. A Romans chapter 15 quotes Isaiah 11 to explain that the good news of Jesus must go to all the nations of the world so that people everywhere will find this hope. Now Isaiah 11 continues to show how the king will go about his work. Now verse 11 uses the idea of God doing something he's done before a second time. Well, what he did the first time was when God rescued his people out of Egyptian slavery to bring them to himself. It was called the Exodus. But that's going to happen again, we're told, but this time it's going to be amplified, magnified. But when he does it again, it won't just be his people from one place. But now we're told he will gather his people from all the places. As in verse 12, when the banner goes up, the king will rise to draw to himself people from the four quarters of the earth. And the people he gathers will begin to experience transformation. So verse 13 is saying, Ephraim's jealousy will vanish. Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. And we're told that that old appetite of, to, to harm, for mistrust, for jealousy, for hostility, is going to be gone as the change begins. And the people gathered to the king will be united. United with those old hostilities forgotten. And the united people will get together behind the king and advance the kingdom. That's verse 14. Going on the attack, they will spread out. Because once the king has come, his people can go to war with him. And with the tools of his warfare. We've learned already in this chapter, the tools of his warfare are the word of his mouth and the belt of truth. We pick it up in Ephesians in the New Testament. The letter to the Ephesians, which speaks how the church is constituted of people from all the nations, brought together in Jesus, being changed together into the likeness of Jesus and joining in the battle of Jesus. Ephesians 6 says it's not a battle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this dark world. And the weapons of the warfare include the ones we found in Isaiah 11. The belt of truth and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
The nations are to hear about the king through whom the proclamation is made by his people. And the spread of the message and the gathering of the people is given, is, is, is sealed and cemented with great assurance in verses 15 and 16. Because there we're told that, that, that this ongoing spread of the kingdom work as people turn to the Lord Jesus will be like that first exodus. In the first exodus, the people came out of Egypt and were confronted with the great Red Sea, trapped by the Red Sea. But then the Lord miraculously intervened to open a way through the water. We're told again that at the second exodus, the Lord will do that kind of thing, removing every barrier, every obstacle on the way to ensure that there will be a highway, there will be a path so that his people can come home from all the places of the world. We've rushed over that a little bit. I probably should have given it another sermon. But the, the point for today is this. That the coming of this king is good news for all people. Good news for people from all places. God is going to gather, rescue and redeem a people from everywhere. So what about us today? See, this king, he has come. It's his birth we remember at Christmas time. This king is good news. He is such good news. He's not okay news. He's not uh, can't really be bothered type news. He's not. He is good news. Good news because of who he is. Thoroughly equipped for the work. He can carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. Good news because of what he does. He will bring perfect justice and create a world of perfect peace. And he's good news because he's for everyone. Now why would you not want this to be real? If people don't want the Bible to be true, it's because I don't think they understand what it says. And when that warrior from heaven appeared to the shepherds, and he said, I bring you good news. What he was saying is that this good news, that anybody with a pulse would want to be real, this good news is happening. The promises are landing in history. They're being played out in real events. There is a baby in the manger and he is this king. This good news smashes into our ordinary lives. Uh, This good news will bring us great joy if we will have it. You see, back in Isaiah's time, this message in chapter 11, the message for those people at that time and the message for us, that the, the application is the same. The king has come. He's been lifted up so that you can believe on him. You can trust your lives to him. The message is believe the good news and be glad. Now King Jesus, he does more than we can imagine. Does more good than we can make up for ourselves. And he does it. Depends on him to do it. We don't have to sort the world out. We don't have to sort ourselves out. We just need to rest on Jesus as Damien read at the beginning, the words of the Lord Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You don't need to bring it yourself. He will give it. The good news is for all people, all types of people, whoever you are, whatever your story is or your background, this is good news for you, if you will have it. At the very end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, King Jesus says, I am coming soon. He says, I, Jesus, am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. I am coming soon. 
soon and he'll make all things new soon and all who have trusted him in this life will enjoy him forever in the life to come he is good news let's just spend a moment in quiet ask the lord is this good news for me